The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. So many of us have felt the call to create our own professional path and start our own business. And that call can be especially strong when your why is deeply personal and mission-driven. And sometimes that even means walking away from something else that from the outside looking in is everything you'd ever want. So how do you handle these moments, make good decisions, and find the courage to step into the unknown? These are the questions that we explore this week with startup founder, advisor, and food activist, Raina Kumra. So as the founder of Spicewell, CEO of Juggernaut, and partner at The Fund LA, Raina is on a mission to help people have greater access to nutrient-dense food and better health at scale. After 25 years of working in the tech industry, she realized that big food requires as much work as big tech and big pharma when she helped heal her family using Ayurvedic practices mid-pandemic. Named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, Raina's mastered new territory in each chapter of her storied career. After a decade in digital advertising, working with brands like Nike and Coke, she knew she could create a bigger impact in the world and really went into the world of entrepreneurship and advising. And her lifelong passion now, starting movements and building new things. She has turned her sights to transforming the American food system but she had no idea or no experience how the food industry worked. What allowed Raina to fully commit to this new endeavor and quickly acquire expertise outside of her comfort zone? How does somebody say yes to a domain where they have no domain expertise? So today we dive into questions that can arise when making decisions about what path to take. Like how do you avoid the sunk cost fallacy and no one to walk away? And if flooded with ideas and directions, how do you stay focused and committed to one project or path. Excited to bring you this insightful conversation on reinvention, purpose, and pursuing unexpected callings. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Spark. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. It's interesting. I have been in and out of the world of functional medicine, of entrepreneurship, of deep exploration of food as medicine also um, for decades. So I'm always fascinated when I see somebody who has this really beautiful storied career, you know, advertising, tech, media, advocacy, investing, entrepreneurship. 
And now really blending a lot of those together in almost a movement ideology when, with a focus on food as medicine. You know, one of the things that, that I think would be interesting to dip into is some of the sort of like the momentum or the, the energy that has built beyond some of the major pivots, but the bigger curiosity that I actually have, given sort of like a number of different seasons of contribution is whether there's a deeper through line that you perceive that is really weaves through all of these different things and that may be rooted in something that's more personal for you. Oh my gosh. Yes, definitely. I really look back on my career and I look for those themes and, you know, I, I also look at what thematically compelled me at the time to take the leap from one industry to another, to another, to another. Cause I've done this about four or five times where I've switched not just careers, but I've switched entire industries. And I think the thing that has always driven me and enabled me has been to make a dent, to make a movement, to, you know, to build a movement and create some change, maybe not all of the change, but to at least incite it, to at least start it. And then once I see it kind of started and rolling, I feel like my job is done and I can back away and go look for the next big juicy problem to solve. Mm. And so that's, that's been one of the through lines is, is really activism, seeing something, not liking the way it is, changing it and, and applying, you know, all of the skills that I brought along the way to that change, to that solution. So here's one of my, my curiosities around what you just said. I love that through line that kind of, and, and when you look back, you can kind of see that weaving into everything. You also said that you love to, to sort of like bring things to a certain point yeah. and then hand them over, you know, like bring the team in to say, okay, so you take it from here. As you're saying that, I, I reflected on one of the conversations that was actually one of the very first that we ever filmed back in the very early days of Good Life Project in New York City. We're sitting down with um, one of the founders of one of the original vegan restaurants in New York. And he had been in it with, with his wife for many, many, many years. And their, the, the staff there was really, they treated them like family. And we're talking about how sometimes painful it was when somebody would, would leave after so many years. And he used this phrase that stayed with me that um, I almost, I wonder if it's something that you feel when you're making this handoff. And he, would, he said to me, I, I had no ill will. I would simply bless them on. You know, he was completely behind them and completely supportive of them in every way. But the time was right for them to move on. And for, you know, like, yeah. I wonder if you feel that way about sort of like the things that you create. Yeah, I think you have to be really honest with yourself. And I think you have to realize when your energy is there and when it's waning. And if you're going to be authentic and live authentically, if your energy is waning, maybe that's not the thing you should be doing. You can't just force yourself to do it. And I think I learned very early on that I was a much better zero to one or zero to five person versus the 10 to 100 person. And I've done both. And I've had passion for both, but I think my natural inclination is to let me put this thing in the world that didn't exist before, and then let me show you what to do with it, and then you take the reins, and you run with it, and let it let it snowball into what I hope it will become. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, how do you 
what tells you that it's time? Um, because I'm wired actually very similarly to you. I love the zero to one or zero to five. And I've done it a number of times over. And 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 I have stepped or, or like sold or exited or handed over a number of times too. And I'm always so curious, what are the internal signs like that, that people feel that let you know, oh, it's time? Well, this, the, I think the, the signs that, you know, you're going to go and do something new or build something like those, that just comes with like flow state and energy. And in, in all of my transitions, there's always been a little bit of wind at my back telling me like, this is where I need to go. And then when that wind fades, you know, you're left to kind of build and continue and, and, and that works for a while. But usually the sign for me is just when I wake up in the morning, am I still excited about it the way I was a couple of months or a year or two ago? And and if it's not there, if that energy isn't there, if that if I'm not going to answer that question honestly and say, actually, I don't have energy for this phase of the business or of the project, I think that's, you know, that's, you just have to be honest. You just have to say and realize, look, this isn't my best. This isn't where I can do my best work. And I think also understanding, you know, each of us has an individual, unique contribution. You, Jonathan, can on, only do what you can do and no one else can do it the way you do it, right? And anything you invent and put into the world would have only been because of who you are and your history and, and your future and all of that. And I feel like knowing that about yourself and knowing the thing that only you can do and only you can put and the only solution that you can design and put in the world the way that you see it, just having that confidence in my individual contribution to the world has helped me both put things in it and also help me let go of them when I have finished my work. Because mm. I'm not the person who is going to take it, you know, and run it and scale it for, forever and ever necessarily. Yeah. I'm curious also, is this something that you've always known about yourself or was there something that happened? Was there a moment where you pushed up against that? Yeah, no, I did not always know that. <laughs> I think I, I learned a pretty hard lesson when I did my first startup, let's call it. It I had worked in advertising. I, you know, great job, great gig, Wyden and Kennedy, Nike client, Coke, Facebook, you know, the best clients in the world. Great fun great people. But I just didn't want to sell stuff anymore. There was something in me that just wasn't motivated anymore by selling sneakers and soda. And I thought, what else can I do with the skills that I've amassed? And then I did a total 180. I went to Malawi, where my mom grew up in Africa. And we had a few connections still to heads of state there. And, you know, I had a few meetings and I decided to start a solar training nonprofit there. And I stood it up, you know, within six months, I fundraised for it. I stood it up. I went to Malawi. We did on the ground training and we were training Malawians to maintain and repair and install solar panels because what had been happening is they were sending people from all over the world to do this. And I'm like, this is just a circuit. Like anyone can do this. Let's Let's just have some classes and created some really good materials and curriculum and started teaching these community classes. And I think I realized very quickly in that first trip 
to Malawi that I did not want to be the person on the ground and I did not want to be the person doing the work for years and years and years. I realized and I had to, this was a big struggle, I remember, give myself the permission to say that, to say that it's okay that I'm the person who started it, not the person who finishes it. So yeah, that was a big, there was a big moment in my life where I had to take that on as part of my psyche. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I feel like whether you're starting your own company, um, your own private practice, or whether you're an employee in an organization, the more connected to it we are on an identity level. And sometimes that unfolds over years. Sometimes it just immediately just becomes a part of you. The harder it is often for us to let go of it, even though there's that voice inside of us that says, you know what? it's actually time. And oftentimes, you know, it's the sunk cost fallacy. Like the more we've invested in it, the yeah. more years, the more resources that yeah. we put into it, there's a, there's this other voice that says, well, how can you walk away from it when you've, you're already so deep into this, you know? And I wonder if you feel like it's unusual for you to have the ability to keep making these decisions where you, you, you recognize it's time and then you move on to the next thing. I feel like so many folks really get stuck and they they get that signal that you get it's time to move on you know you're waking up there's no energy behind it anymore and yet they say but i'm so invested in this how can i walk away from everything i put into it already yeah i remember getting that sunk cost analysis uh, lesson too and it's so hard it's so hard to peel away from something that you've put so much love and energy and effort and money and blood, sweat and tears <laughs> into, I think you just have to pull off that bandaid because that energy you have to remember can only go to one place at one time. And whatever you're investing into something that may not be exactly aligned, may not be right, that's also energy you're not investing in the thing that is right okay so now i want to deconstruct what you just shared you said that energy can only go to one place at one time this is something that i have pushed up against so many times i'm like literally in this moment pushing up against it as i run two different companies and i'm (laughs) and i know I know to in my bones that this is not the way that I feel at my best and that I'm serving the two different communities on the highest possible level. It's so many of us have this impulse to say, no, I can do it. Like I can do X, Y, I can do one, two, three, maybe even four things. Yeah. And you're saying, no, like, let's get real. You really can't. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to work with an incredible coach um, for the last two years. And her name is Anjani Bhargava. She's amazing. For me as a South Asian woman to work with a South Asian coach was the first in my life. And it was amazing in so many different ways. But she is the one who taught me one thing about myself, which is, you know, I want to keep all the doors open at all the times, but energy is leaking out of those doors. So the more doors I close, the more funneled focus and energy I will have for the doors that should remain open for the right ones. And I think that the opportunity cost analysis versus the sunk cost analysis is a very compelling argument, right? My potential, 
my time, my all of this, right? You think about that. My children, for example, like if I do this company for the next five, 10 years, like they're going to be this age and I'm going to have not been able to do some of the things with them through that time. And you only get one day once. You don't get it again. You only get that one moment once. So that is probably, if you are an analytical person, the best way to make the decision is to look at, really map out your analytical like objectives, map out your opportunity cost, map out what your time is really worth, and then look at look at what you've invested in and say, yes, I did put a lot of time into that, but do I still do that? Because it's not worth it. Most of the time, I think you'll find if it's not a full alignment, it's not worth doing. Yeah, so agree. And uh, the opportunity cost side, I think, is something that so often we we don't do that analysis also. You know, Ooh, we're just kind of looking forget. at what we put into it yeah, and what's possible. But then we look at what am I saying no to, Yeah, you know, um, and how is that how is that denying potentially who I might be of service to and that other possibility, but also what's it denying within me, yeah. you know, like in, in my own humanity and my ability to live the way I want to live. Yes. And if you can adopt that principle, you can apply it to everything you can apply that to feeling FOMO like why am I spending energy on this when I could be spending energy on something that makes me feel better or or any any of the things that I think are hindrances and handicaps that we allow ourselves to have we don't need them we just keep putting them in our Mm. way and even in organizations you know there's so many so many examples of what we do at work you know where we decide to behave a certain way but really the entire workplace would benefit if we were more vulnerable for example Mm, yeah big leadership lesson in there you know i'm thinking about the last four years or so you know i think so many people have been brought to moments of reckoning brought to their knees brought to moments of awakening revelation and also really really tough times and sometimes profound loss you know, it's affected different people in very different ways. But I think one of the universal things that I've seen bubble up is a reinvestigation of the way that you're spending your life and very often with a focus on your working life. You're like, how am I spending this substantial part of my days and of my life? And I know for you, you know, like this this season led to an entire new endeavor and it was in part rooted in, um, in a family health crisis. Yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. And I think I never intended to be a food entrepreneur. I couldn't have seen this coming in a million years. I'd spent most of my career in digital and tech, and that was my comfort zone. So I really had to have a conversation with myself about identity and how it was okay to go into a, a new field and do something that I had never imagined doing. But the work is different. The work is the work is very different in atoms versus pixels, right? Yeah. So, so take me there. Tell me, tell me how this whole story unfolds. Okay. So, middle of the pandemic, I had just sort of wrapped up with um, the the venture fund that I helped set up here in LA. We fully deployed. I was thinking about next steps what I would do, you know, was I going to go heavier into investing? Was I going to do something else? And then I had this voice that was like, 
there's another build in you. You know, I, I know there's probably one or two more builds. You need to start a company again. And so I started looking at ideas. I started brainstorming. I started thinking about it. I came up with a million tech ideas and I didn't like any of them. I just was so bored with all of them. And I think after looking at hundreds and hundreds of decks over the year, uh, year or two, I was like not interested in any movement in tech at that time. And then I, um, my husband had knee surgery, so brought him home and was, you know, ready to kind of help him get back to health. And then within the same 24 hour period, my five-year-old daughter broke her collarbone. So now I had two patients to take care of and one of them, uh, 40 something, one of them five, and both of them needing much of the same thing, which was nutrient dense foods to heal their bones, their muscles, their nerves, everything. And I did a lot of research, um, both in Ayurveda, working with an Ayurvedic consultant and using my mom's recipes, my grandma's recipes, and a lot of tinctures, a lot of turmeric, a lot of ginger, a lot of seeds, and that helped them. And then I also looked at nutrition and went to our garden, chopped down kale and broccoli, dehydrated it, put it into all of their foods because you need these things to heal. Like vitamins come from vegetables. There's no need to keep taking pills if you can eat the right amount properly. And that was sort of the genesis of Spicewell. They got better really fast. The doctors were really impressed. We used no over-the-counter medicines. And then I was able to take all of what I learned in that period and apply it across the American public. And I wanted to do it in a way that was had two requirements. One, shelf-stable, because I didn't know how to deal with cold chain. And the other was no habit change, something that people already do every day, and we can just enhance it. We can just put in some vitamins, we can take out some of the bad ingredients. And it was just a very simple, obvious invention, I guess, a notion that I wanted to try. I tested it with almost 200 people. We got to a final formulation within six months. I had Dr. Mark Hyman as an advisor. I had Ann Veneman, who used to run the USDA as an advisor. And, and we were off, and I had product in market six months later. So it was just one of those moments where I got out of my own way. I allowed some flow state to, to take over, and, and I started a company doing something I never expected to do. So I want to deconstruct that a little bit because you just said it in a very matter-of-fact way, like this, then this, then this, then this, and it just it, was, it happened. Like it was great, but I know that that's not what happens when you start a company, especially in the middle of a pandemic when you're taking care of two family members who are recovering from injury. And yes, you have the chops. Like you were deep into the world of investment and entrepreneurship. Like you know what that process is about. Mm-hmm. But. This domain is profoundly new to you. Yes. And and I guess it is and it isn't, right? Because this was, on the one hand, it was part of your family culture, but not in terms of like building a business around it. No, no. You know, we do have some food entrepreneurs in our family, but I had never worked at a food company, you know, other than marketing campaigns for some Unilever brands and Nestle brands, I had never touched the world of food and didn't really understand it. I think what I found so thrilling is learning how much I loved and enjoyed the formulation process and how much I loved and enjoyed the research process and understanding what compounds did what to our bodies, to our cells, how things were absorbed, in what combination were they best absorbed. And I just 
nerded out like uh, I had never, you know, in my life <laughs> been able to do because I had never put that in front of me. And I didn't realize this was something I loved so much. And maybe I missed a calling, but, you know, somehow I found, I found a place to do it. Yeah, and that allowed me to fulfill my potential in a way that I think otherwise would have gone unnoticed. I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because you start something, and this is something that I feel like so often happens with us when we get ideas. You'd been literally looking for ideas yeah. to, to create something yeah. new. Like you said, you knew that there was a voice inside of you that said, I have another build, maybe two inside yeah. of me. And you're going through idea, idea, idea. And like you're, you know, it's like the Marie Kondo of, of startup ideas. Like, do, will it spark me? Does it bring me joy? Yeah. Like everything is saying no to you. And then this one thing happens and you're like, okay, so let me just do what I need to do to take care of my family. And it was that thing that, you know, then you hold it up to your heart and you're like, oh, this. Yeah. Which it's it's fascinating to me also because this was an area where you'd have to really acquire a huge amount of new domain expertise or bring people together to make that happen. And I think a lot of people, when they hit that point and said, this is really interesting, I'm energized by it. This I could see myself like doing, like building something around but I don't know enough. I'm not like, I'm not that person. Like I don't have any pedigree or credibility or I don't have the knowledge or the wisdom. And they just walk away from it. There's something in you that said, but I can get it. And, and I'm, I'm curious about that voice. You know why, Jonathan? Because there have been so many times where I did the other thing, where I had an idea and I was like, oh, well, that's out of my domain of expertise. I, you know, I'm going to invent the next widget that just solves the whole problem of carrying around a phone. I had all these ideas and I never did them. And then two years later, I'll see the idea and I'll see it and someone else has done it, right? And so because I had enough of that built up in my system at the point where I encountered this idea, I realized it was like, okay, I'm either gonna have to take this with both hands and hold on to it and ride this all the way to the end or I'm going to have to let it go and be happy and comfortable if I see someone else doing it. And something clicked in me at that moment where I was like, I can't let this one go because I'm the right person to do this. If, for example, a frat boy finds this idea and does it, it won't be Ayurvedic authentic. If someone else in big food does it, it won't be clean label because they'll never spend this much on ingredients like I do. <laughs> So I just was like, I have to do this. This idea has been given to me. I'm going to be the doula for it. I'm going to get it out in the world. Mm. So when you make that decision that says, this is for me and I'm going to do this, what becomes important to you about the way you're going to do it, about like the, the fundamental qualities or values or beliefs or like that you want to bring to them? Because... There are plenty of places where you can get Ayurvedic herbs. There are plenty of places where you can buy yeah. organic, like high-density, high nutrient-laden foods. But it feels like there's something bigger behind this. It feels like there's a movement energy that is behind this. Like it's, there is. There's something bigger yeah. that's, that's motivating you. And I would not be able to sustain interest in anything, like I said earlier, unless there is that movement, that sort of activism that's, that can hold me to it that can keep me going because starting a successful CPG company, a beautiful, beloved brand, that's not the goal. 
making something that people love to eat and is better for them, great. That's also not the goal. The goal is actually to impact and change the American food system, which takes us straight from big food into the hands of big pharma in a handshake that costs us illness and money. I mean, we spend $3.7 trillion managing chronic illness And most of that chronic illness is caused by nutrient deficiency. And I think once you see this pattern and you see the the chain and you follow the money a little bit, you can't unsee it. And I just got so angry about it. So I had to do something. Mm. So it becomes the thing you can't not do, basically. That's right. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned, I think, is really interesting. Um, It was sort of like your second tenet, which is, we have to do something that doesn't require any substantial change in behavior or habit, like habit creation or breaking. Take me into that, um, that thought process a bit more, because I think it's, it's really interesting given the bigger mission, you know, like, because if you really want something to be adopted at scale, it's really hard to do that. If part of that process requires a meaningful change in behavior. Yeah. I, well, and I think, What's so nice about being an older entrepreneur is that you have a career behind you uh, and a lot of experience. And so my time in consumer behavior and and working in advertising and really understanding some defaults about consumers in the U.S. One, Americans don't really read. They don't really read food labels. How do we adjust for that? And then also habit change is incredibly difficult. I mean, it's been difficult for me personally in my life when I want to, you know, start a new smoothie habit or I start using a product for a couple of weeks and then I finish the box and I, you know, forget to reorder it. I think there's there's a lot around habit change that's been written. I'm, you know, I love Atomic Habits. I read that as well. I understand that there's a lot we can do, but if you want to remove all the friction and get a product to be used, you have to make it dead simple. And that was my goal. And and in all of my advertising work, that's always been my philosophy. All my sort of messaging work, keep it simple. The world is very complicated. We don't need to create any more cognitive load than is necessary at any given moment. So as we have this conversation, you're, I guess, what, about two, two and a half years into this endeavor? Um, Two years, right? So here's my curiosity, going back to the early part of our conversation. um, Are you still like all in on this? Like, yes, 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 we're building, we're building, building. Or are you starting to get that voice that says, "Mm, it's time? No, not, not at all. Because I think what's a little bit different about this company versus my other companies, they were mostly service, service businesses. And I think service businesses run a different cycle and take a different toll on you. This was maybe one of the first times that I've not just marketed a product, but I actually created a product and it has a life of its own. So it has been so fascinating to watch this little thing kind of float out into uh, everyone's consciousness and watch what it does without me. And it's doing a lot. So it's almost like my third child. And I'm just sort of, you know, in awe of this little toddler, this little two-year-old running around the world, getting uh, lots of people to love it. And I think that's what's really different. And in a way, it's really 
holding. It's fascinating me. And I, I, I just can't wait to see what's next. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what comes through, you know, as I'm listening to you and watching you speak is, um, I, I look at, um, building a company oftentimes as, you know, are you drawn more towards the process of creating something or to the content of what you're mm -hmm. creating, whether it's service or product, whatever it may be, um, or is it both? And what I've seen, and I'm so curious what your take is, more often than not, it's one or the other. It's not both. Usually a person just loves the process of building or creation. Somebody loves the actual content or the idea or the product, but it's often not an, an equal drive for both. But I almost feel like there's like what the energy that, that um, is coming from you is that this may be the first time where you are equally compelled by both parts of this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's, that's exactly right. I did have it with my tech company, but I think tech products a little different. The reception's a little different. The use, you know, it's in your phone. This is, it's so fascinating to watch this just enter people's lives, their kitchens, their, you know, it's, it's, it's very different. And, and, and more fun. Yeah. <laughs> mm. and, and that's got to be a part of the process. I mean, doing your own thing is hard no matter how much you love it, no matter how much <sighs> so the world hard. embraces it. And if, if there isn't some element of fun, at least somewhere along the way, it's really hard to sustain. <laughs> I mean, within any given day, I'll have 10 highlights and five lowlights. And it's just, you know, the, the entrepreneurial cycle of like, okay. It was, was it a good day? I don't know. But at 10 points today, I was extremely happy. So, yes. <laughs> mm, I love that. So along the way, I mean, one of the things that you've always done, it's been a part of you, is some form of advising, mentoring. It seems like that's sort of in your bones as well. So for folks who are listening to this conversation and they start to feel inspired and start to feel like maybe I'm not bound to whatever I've done before this moment in time or like there are ideas mm -hmm. that I have. What are your thoughts for that person? Like, is there one sort of bit of wisdom that you would invite that person to think about when they're considering a move into creating something that is deeply inspiring to them? Yeah, I would, I would just remember the, the equation, right, that we talked about earlier, which is what's the opportunity cost? And whatever you're doing now, what's the opportunity cost? And where do you want to put your greatest energy of the moment and what what do you want to see coming from it so yes if you are in a job right now if you are thinking about starting something you have an idea you know you're the best person to do it or you have the best team around you to to execute it i mean if you don't execute it someone else will so there's there's that which is a little bit more fomo driven but the other way to approach it is this is something that as a gift that's been given to you. Don't, we don't know where ideas come from, but they come and you have it and it's yours if you want it. And if you don't pass it along, someone else will do it. But I think when they come to you, you have to at least recognize and acknowledge that a gift has been given. And I think from there, you can have a whole different path or route of what happens with that idea versus just dismissing it straight off the bat, which we all do often. Mm -hmm. 
No, that makes so much sense. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your story, and your insights. And to all our listeners, thanks so much for joining in. And we'll see you here again next week. Take care. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked. This episode of Sparked was produced by executive producers Lindsay Fox and me, Jonathan Fields. Production and editing by Sarah Harney. Special thanks to Shelley Dell for her research on this episode.